am still really excited about finding an economic model that can be repeatable and sustainable in the last mile. I think it is still very expensive piece of the supply chain and no one has completely and totally cracked the code on making dense routes, sustainable routes, and good unit economics around the last mile. Welcome to Supply Chain Connections. I'm Brian Glick, founder and CEO of Chain.io. And on today's episode, we have Penny Register Shaw. Penny has a wide range of experience across retail supply chains, logistics providers, and startups, including companies like FedEx, Walmart, and Amazon. Today, we're gonna talk about how there are different strengths and weaknesses across these different players in the industry, whether it's a large logistics service provider or a hot new startup in the last mile space. So we'll be comparing and contrasting those strengths and weaknesses and learning a lot about the industry as a whole. So without further ado, here's the episode. Hi, Penny. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Why don't we uh, start with just maybe a little bit of your background and let everyone know your journey through the industry? Yeah, well, I usually start with my origin story when I was in my 20s in Rhode Island, when the governor appointed me to the Rhode Island Transit Authority, and I was the chairman before I was 30 years old and not at all suited for the job. So I put in a lot of extra effort, learning about density and routing and being on time places in the movement of people. And from there, I just began my journey, went to FedEx and was there for almost 20 years in a variety of roles. And since then, I have intentionally targeted working for large companies like Amazon and Walmart and startups and medium-sized companies in a variety of roles so that I could really know the industry from every angle. And I'd say that I've achieved that. So contrast those for me a little bit. What are some of the, you know, I think there are people on different sides of what they may even see as a conflict, right? As to startups versus established companies. And, you know, you get a lot of extreme positions online of, oh, it's this is better, or that's better. But I know the answer is always a little bit in the middle. So kind of what are some of the things you've enjoyed in the bigger companies and things that you love about the startups? Yeah. At a large company, I think what helps me thrive the most is the support infrastructure that comes along with it. You don't necessarily have to be your own recruiter, your own HR representative. You don't have to worry about the payroll taxes being right. You know, those things are long ago established. So that's one less thing that takes up, you know, your mind space for the week. I also like the fact that the guardrails of what the products are and the services are fairly well established. And once those guardrails are up, that gives me the field in which that I'm playing. 
sense, uh, if that makes sense. And I can be free within that field. What I like about startups is I consider myself to be a utility player. And I like going from one skill set and one function to the other. So one day I might be thinking about security, the next day compliance, the next day operational efficiencies and improvements. And I do like that because I certainly don't get bored. There's no rinse, wash, repeat in a startup world. Well, I think one of the nice things about supply chain is there's very rarely a rinse, wash, repeat in general, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I always say that I haven't had the same day twice in my 25 years doing this. So that's fun. (laughs) Yes, yes. What is the Aldous Huxley book? It's a brave new world every day. (laughs) Take me back to my ninth grade English class. Exactly. (laughs) So. You talk about being a utility player and, you know, certainly as I've gone on this journey, I've learned more about things like state tax filings and GDPR compliance and all sorts of things that you just don't think about when you just want to go build some supply chain software and help people. Exactly. One of the things that I know you have some thoughts on is when you have to learn a new space is kind of that long journey to actually being an expert in something and kind of one of the challenges that could be startups is we don't always have the time to kind of truly get to that journey to excellence. But kind of what are your thoughts on how long it takes to get to being great at things? Yeah, I absolutely think that you can get the foundational knowledge fairly quickly. But going from that foundational knowledge, which in learning theory is called the pinnacle of stupidity, I think is what it's called. You then go into a deep valley and a long, hard climb up to expertise. And I, you know, this is going to be overly and falsely precise, but I think at least eight years. That's when I feel like having watched people do this for a couple of decades now. Eight years is when people really come into their own. They have history to call upon, but also very good instincts about what might happen next. And they're also smart enough to know what they don't know. So they go looking for the knowledge that fills the gap. So eight to 15 years in the business. Again, very falsely precise. That (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things that actually I've been challenged with is, or challenges that I've had in our business is, you know, through the, the pandemic and the hot job market and kind of working with what I will say is staff younger than me, at least, this idea that people want to be promoted or change jobs very, very quickly. Yes. You know, and I probably come from sort of a middle point generation of, you know, having the expectation of two to three years Mm -hmm. to kind of get good at something. And now it seems like, you know, it's more like a year that people expect and then I want to do something else, which is really against what you just said, right? Yes. You haven't even learned that you're bad at it yet. Exactly. Right? 
<laughs> but I'm wondering if you have like had conversations with people or, you know, any kind of way that you would think about expressing that to people, you know, who maybe are frustrated if their boss is saying, hey, you're not quite ready for your next thing. Yeah. Well, I try to partner with those people and reveal what more there is to learn. That's not always successful. But I also have had to change my approach to things. When I got out of law school long ago, everyone recruited you with the words of, you'll be here 35 years. If anyone came in and tried to recruit with that mantra today, people would go running for the hills. But it was considered to be a very comforting and assuring kind of thing back when I graduated from law school. I think you have to show people that this industry is a marathon, not a sprint. There are lots of things that you think you know, but you really don't know. And I'm saying these things and I'm hearing myself being way too paternalistic or maternalistic to have any effect. But, you know, people will either get that message or not at the time. And if they get it, they'll stick around and learn more. And if they don't, they will be off to the next thing. And you say a year, and my experience has been six months, you know, (laughs) I'm impatient. Yeah. I was uh, hoping to get a year out of some people sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of bringing us back to supply chain for a second. You know, you've had the opportunity to work with companies in sort of the first, middle, and last mile. Yes. And... You know, I know that the last mile gets a lot of press lately, right? In the last few years, e-com and all of that. Uh, you know, but where do you see some of the big opportunities? What has you excited out there? Yeah, I am still really excited about finding an economic model that can be repeatable and sustainable in the last mile. I think it is still very expensive piece of the supply chain, and no one has completely and totally cracked the code on making dense routes, sustainable routes, and good unit economics around the last mile. In the middle mile, I would say that there's going to be some, what's the word I'm searching for, some combinations around in the market so that there aren't 40,000 competitors out there trying to all ride the same core infrastructure in the United States. In the middle mile, what I'm most passionate about is trying to get the roads and bridges of this country (laughs) in better shape. You go to other countries who probably started building their infrastructure, you know, post the 60s, 70s. And it's so much more efficient. It's so much more thoughtful. So I'd like to see the United States concentrate on that and then move forward in the middle mile. The first mile was where I played for the longest time at FedEx. And 
finding better ways to get things out of airports and ocean ports and pre-file the information that will allow customs to clear before the plane or the ship arrives, having the right security. I'll always fall back to security and safety issues in the first mile. Those are places where I think there's still room for improvement, lots of room for improvement. I'm passionate about the first mile, spent most of my career kind of in basically order through customs clearance. Then there was this amazing world called Dreyage that we just didn't know what that was, but somehow things got out of the port and got to where they needed to be. And then we saw them in the stores. But no, I think that there's a lot of companies, and this is, maybe it goes back to your experience, you know, from a Walmart or an Amazon versus what you see in the startup world is, I didn't understand when I started Chain.io how far the first mile gap was between, say, the top 10% of retailers and everyone else on the planet as far as sophistication. Their ability to issue a purchase order and track it and have piece level visibility and leverage free trade agreements and you know effectively have this entire thing mapped out. And then you hit a wall at you know, importers who do less than 30,000 shipments a year, which is 99.9% of importers. If they're lucky, they have taken all those emails that they have and put them in a spreadsheet, right? Exactly. <laughs> Has that been your experience as well, that there's just this huge gulf? Yes. And even when I was working at a large freight forwarder that FedEx had created, even some of the very large players would just throw up their hands at some point and say, take care of all my importing for me from origin to clearance and let me know when it's finished. You're not saying that there are major retail brands who may not have their supply chains completely organized. That's right. That that would be sacrilege if that's what you're saying. No, that's not what I'm saying. (laughs) I'm just saying there's uh, room for attention to detail. Maybe that's the nice way to put it, the nice Southern lady way to say it. (laughs) You know, I'll just say kind of again from my personal experience that, you know, I think when I first encountered a lot of the latest generation of tech companies mm-hmm. that are addressing first mile, but also middle, I think last mile and e-com delivery is different. But in those other two areas, I was very dismissive of a lot of the tech out there as being useless because I had come from places mm-hmm. where we were on the other side of that gulf. We were on the more advanced side. Right. And people would say, okay, I have this, you know, order management platform. I'm like, yeah, but it doesn't deal with the fact that you might have a multi sourced product. I literally sent this an email this morning and somebody like, what happens if 20% of the products is uh, subject to the Korean free trade agreement and the other 80% is sourced from somebody else? And how do you do your blended landed cost? And they're like, uh, we're just trying to move t shirts here. <laughs> right. Like, you know, this built-in bias that I think a lot of us people who have been in these really complicated things miss opportunities that some of the newcomers understand that they don't have to solve for those problems. Yes. There's an addressable market that doesn't leverage free trade agreements, for example, right? I'd say that's true, but perhaps 
the compliance part of me will still kind of <laughs> seize up when I see that these solutions aren't addressing the other gaps. And what I have always tried to do in my career, and I'll borrow from the Amazon leadership principles to express it, is look around a corner and anticipate what's coming and try to avoid the loss of management and leadership time that comes along with having to solve an administrative or compliance or litigious issue. I'd rather just have it never come up rather than say, oh, we'll get to that five years from now. That's just the way I'm wired, I think. I think we come from the same place. Yeah. So the the number of customers that I had when I was, again, on the custom side, you know, where they'd say, we're not going to invest in this solution for $100,000 and say, well, when you get your $10 million penalty, you certainly will. You certainly will wish you had invested the $100,000 then. Yeah. And then they'd pay us a million dollars to get them out of the $10 million penalty that they could have not had in the first place. So yeah, it's a speech I've given a lot of times. So <laughs> Yes. And, you know, paying a million dollars to get out of the $10 million penalty, sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes mm-hmm. the administrative agency does not have the ability, the authority to negotiate down. And that is also a foreign concept to some people that, oh, what do you mean I can't propose a win-win situation settlement kind of thing here? Very true. Yeah. One of the things you said to me a couple of weeks ago that kind of stuck with me was that supply chain in general is cooling down as a topic while the problems are heating up. Mm -hmm. Want to kind of talk a little bit about what you meant by that? Yeah. So during the pandemic, For the first time in my career, my husband and daughter actually understood what I did for a living, and they were reading articles about supply chain and bottlenecks and new solutions, and they kind of got it. And when the world started opening up again, those articles dried up, that attention to the supply chain has largely dried up. But I regret that because with inflation, with a possible recession, with an over perhaps investment during the pandemic in some areas, there needs to be thoughtful reapportionment of resources around supply chain. And It's not sexy right now. Again, (laughs) there was this one brief shining moment where it was kind of sexy, and now it's not as sexy anymore. Well, as we're recording this, there's, uh, you know, rumblings going on on the West Coast about the labor situation maybe finally coming to a head, which would certainly make it sexy again. It would. Unfortunately, right? So. That is the part that's a shame. It's kind of like what you were saying about, you know, the building, the bridges and the roads is you tend to get the funding when the bridge collapses and it's in the news, right? (laughs) So Yeah. And to back to the point of anticipating, 
how about we improve the port operations before there's some catastrophic event? That's so much less fun, though. Yeah, yeah. That actually goes back to an old management lesson that I learned a long time ago, which was not to employ arsonist firefighters. Okay. Right? That there are lots of people who love to put out fires in companies and in supply chains and in all sorts of things. And if they get bored, they light the fire so that they have a fire to put out. Exactly. This was a big thing when we ran data centers was you would have, you know, engineers, administrators who would always be trying to do something new and innovative. And part of it was that stuff always broke. And then they had fun things to work on to fix. Yeah. And say, you know, I'm just trying to run a warehouse here. Let's tone down on the excitement a little bit and get some foundational things done, right? Yes. So Probably the first deal I ever did as a baby attorney at the end of it, someone said, you are unflappable. I took that as a compliment. In retrospect, I'm not sure it was. I think they meant, get more passionate about my deal, you know? I feel like if it's code red all the time, every day, you're not really ready when it is code red. I agree with you entirely. I think that, um, you know, especially now running a software infrastructure company, right? We regularly talk about how boring is good, Mm -hmm. right? And boring means data is moving. Boring means containers are moving. Boring means, you know, we all get to go home at the end of the day. Right. Yes. And sleep. Those are good things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, what else are you excited about? What's kind of like the next thing that you're you're getting all pumped up about? Yeah. Well, I mentioned that I think the winners and losers are going to start emerging here over the next uh, two, three, five years, and I think that will be very interesting to watch, but also, I hope, participate with one of the winners as they emerge. So I'm excited about that. I continue to have and have never lost the idealistic part of me where I believe that what we do provides access to people who might not have access to goods and services otherwise if we didn't show up and do our jobs every day. And that is kind of, you know, creating a middle class maybe is what that's about, a new middle class, not just the United States, but globally. So those are my idealistic things. And then I am super excited about EVs and AVs and the infrastructure that supports them and reducing the carbon footprint by 53%, which I think requires two out of every three vehicles that are put on the road in any class over the next 10 years to be electric. Yeah, I think that's a a really admirable goal. I hope we can get there. I hope we can get there too. So if people want to get in touch with you, want to reach out, want to talk, kind of engage in these conversations more, what's the best way to find you? 
Yeah, well, I'm super available, and my email address is a long one. We'll put it in the show notes. That sounds good. That so. <laughs> sounds good. But you can email me. You can text me. You can contact me on LinkedIn. I love talking to smart people. I learned during the pandemic that I am a very social person. I always thought I was an introvert and got my energy by going into a study and reading a book and meditating. But no, I actually get my energy from engaging with other smart people. So I'd love to talk to your audience. In any- you, know, you know, it's funny. I can so relate to that. I always sort of pictured myself very differently than what I found out that I was, right? Mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, spent this entire past week out visiting customers. And if you had told my 20 or 25-year-old self that that was going to be my favorite part of my job yeah. versus the sitting in a room and looking at a spreadsheet or a piece of code, I would have said you were crazy. So it's nice to find a kindred spirit. Yeah. And I feel like we're kindred spirits on a lot of things. I think we've been thinking about the same issues for a considerable amount of time. And I always find talking to you very enjoyable. If we continue down this line of conversation, I'm going to lose my reputation as Northeasterner. So (laughs) this might be a good time for us to wrap up. So thank you so much for being on the show. Despite the accent, I think we've shared in the past that I spent a great deal of my childhood in Boston. So I certainly will lose my reputation as being a New Englander. (laughs) Let's stop being nice to each other then. The hell with you. (laughs) Yeah, the hell with you too. And we'll wrap up on that. We'll both keep our reputations intact. So thanks again for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Penny, for that wonderful episode. Be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. And if you are in Germany during the month of June, make sure to come visit us at Transport Logistic and check out the Chain.io blog at chain.io. We have lots of new content out there. It's always a good read. So I will talk to you next time. I'm Brian Glick, founder and CEO of Chain.io. 